Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between two deep fakes masquerading as humans with pulses, that real-life double act of the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, that's him. And we're closing in fast on our 100th episode of exposing sycophants and stenographers, the ones that create the bubbles and get our portfolios into trouble. We know why you, our audience, listen to podcasts, to impress friends at dinner parties and keep abreast of really interesting topics, but commitment is really extending that 35-minute podcast to a 15-hour audiobook, and that's where we're turning our attention today. Audiobooks have been in the news here in the UK and Australia, with Spotify trying, a year after spending $135 million buying a tiny company in Ohio to get into that market. The bubble in podcasts we know resulted in trouble with millions wasted, shows being axed, and big layoffs. What we haven't seen in over two decades is an explosion in audiobooks. It's still relatively small, making about 1.6 billion in the US last year, about 10% of the total book industry. So listen up to a podcast about audiobooks. And while you do ask yourself, what's the difference in these two formats anyway? Back in a moment with our expert, Will Page to talk about the bubble trouble in audiobooks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Will, bring us up to speed here because I've known about audiobooks, but honestly, they're not big on my agenda. And I have to say, they always felt like one of these strange things for old folks to check out of the library. Well, it is a bit of a niche product. I don't think you can say it's mainstream. I don't think you can say that all the students going to university at this time of year up and down the country are looking forward to listening to audiobooks. So it remains niche. And equally, it remains complicated. If you look at the FAQ pages of Audible or here in the UK, if you look at the FAQ pages of Spotify, it's not clear what you can and can't do with either A, your credits on Audible or B, your excess minutes on Spotify. So it remains niche, it remains complicated, and remains a fraction of the size of music, which has now gone mainstream and is relatively simple. You pay 10 quid a month, you can consume all you want. And I think that's where, for me, we, we, we're seeing perhaps a lot of mm. excitement about something which isn't that big. And that qualifies for a Bubble Trouble episode. Yeah, but let's go back to basics here. You're a first-time author. You're going through the whole process of figuring out if you're going to write a book and getting an agent, a publisher, overseas publishing. and translation rights and they come along and say what about this thing audiobook you're gonna are you gonna read your own book i mean what makes this industry distinct and is there anything we need to know before we get going on audiobooks aren't they just basically the author reading the book <laughs> well 
It's interesting, during my journey of writing the book, and here we're talking about early 2021, you get that letter saying, who would you like to read your book? And that day was the day that Sean Connery died, so clearly he was out of the picture. But we did get a fantastic actor, sort of B-rate actor, called Angus King from Perthshire to read the book. He read Shuggy Bane, which is a breakout Audible success story. Came in, read the book in four days, left, didn't get to meet him, didn't get to thank him. Bit of a surreal procedure, but that's how you kind of get granted a reader for an audiobook. What's interesting, though, is if I give you a sort of two-by-two matrix here, you can go to Audible and see good reader, bad book, good book, bad reader, good, good, bad, bad. So it's quite interesting to kind of play around with, have you got a good reader, question one, and have you got a good book, question two. Hopefully, in my case, judging by the reviews, it's good and good, a great reader and a great book. But it's, it's interesting. The other thing, just stepping back from the book industry, is the book industry hasn't really changed that much. The front-face consumer mm. proposition has. Amazon basically came along in the late 1990s when I was at university and said, you carry on doing your thing, commissioning, publishing books, and we'll work out to sell them on the internet. And not a lot has changed in those 23 years. And I find that really interesting. Mm. The business didn't have an Napster moment. The business didn't have to change because Amazon and then Audible comes along and says, carry on doing what you're doing. Still the same organizational structures as back in the 90s in these publishing houses. You do what you do and we'll jump on top and work out how to sell these things on this thing called the internet. So it didn't get, it didn't get wiped out by digitization and piracy the way music did. But, but audiobooks, I mean, I think of them, and I remember this with my kids buying CDs for the car journeys. And you had the likes of, a fantastic author like Neil Gaiman reading his own work. But my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, isn't this A, a tiny market, B, it's mostly older folks listening who maybe they're, they need reading glasses, they don't see so well, they want the company of a long yarn being read to them. And these are the kind of things I remember seeing people take out of the library and check out as CDs and bring back after they played them to the kids or played them at home while they were uh, having their endless cups of tea. The demographics are interesting. I mean, I think podcasts skew 25 and above. Hence, record mm-hmm. labels today know they can't get to number one with songs that appeal to older people because those older people are spending all their time listening to podcasts. You can't get the momentum mm-hmm. into a song to get it to the top of the charts. Whereas if 25 plus describes a podcaster, I think audiobooks are a 35 plus product. So they haven't really got the younger generation into audiobooks. And then you think about a cohort of, that, again, back to those students going to university today, are they going to be listening to audiobooks or are they going to be sticking with podcasts? So you have an interesting fork in the road. You highlighted at the very front. What's the difference between the two? It's just audio content broken up into chapters. So I think the mm. demographics means it skews old. You did also mention libraries, a quick point on there. I think libraries have ever there was an industry that needs to rethink. And I know it catches the nation's hearts and we claim to be passionate about them, but seriously, I wouldn't send my worst enemy to my local library. It's not a safe place to leave your bag unmanned. And, you know, what's worse about libraries today is they still have late fees. You know, the story of Netflix Mm. and Blockbuster. Blockbuster innovated more than anyone else, but they couldn't get rid of their late fees. And it's strange to see that in 2023, libraries still persist to have late fees on their customers. They couldn't be a bigger deterrent for using your library. Another example where the book industry needs a bit of a rethink. Now, you pitched me this idea that there's all this excitement about audiobooks coming to Spotify in the UK and, and, and eventually the US. Now, I have to say, I'm 
completely underwhelmed by this news. And I mean, really, who cares? Aren't we talking about a tiny slice of the public that bothers to read books at all? And then an even tinier slice of the public that that might need to, for one reason or another, listen to them. I think you got to welcome competition. You know, this is a market which has had one dominant player for 25 years. Fair enough, fair enough. Now we've got two. But you got to welcome competition. And what you would hope is competition reduces friction. And I'd like to stress, that if you look at the Audio Audible's FAQ page about what you can and can't do with your credits, you do need a PhD. It does get quite complicated. You look at Spotify's FAQ page, it is kind of long. There's still friction in the consumption of audiobooks. And I think what that is capturing is just the anomaly. With music, it's pretty straightforward. Most songs are three to four minutes long. They all get valued the same, the same half cent per stream. It's a very homogeneous market. Audiobooks are very heterogeneous. Fiction, non-fiction, long form, short form, novellas. So the fact these products are different makes the way that we charge for them a bit trickier. And I think that doesn't resonate with the consumer. The consumer just wants to get rid of friction, pay an upfront fee, and consume as much audio content as possible. Be it music, be it podcast, be it an audiobook, they're agnostic. Mm. Fill those ears. Right. And But my understanding was that's kind of how Audible works. So you are an Audible subscriber and you can listen to all the audiobooks you want. Not Isn't quite, that the case? no. An Audible subscriber subscribes to credits. So it's almost like a gym membership of you pay to join the gym and you get to use the gym the number, you know, on a set number of times per month. So if it's a one credit a month subscription fee, you can use that credit to acquire one book a month. Can you roll that credit over if it's unused? That's where it gets tricky. But there's a unit value associated with the book. If you let go of that unit value and just charge per time, then we enter a whole different dilemma of, well, how did the royalties work for the author? That's where it gets a little bit tricky. But at least with Audible, you have this unit value which should, in theory, uphold the price. It confuses the hell out of the consumer, but it upholds the price for the author. And that's back to my point about books just being very heterogeneous, very hard to price. Right. And I tell you, if, if I know I'm being charged based on time, I'm going to listen to everything at that 1.5 or 2x kind of uh, Bugs Bunny <laughs> speed really fast. But now, uh, again, I want to step back here and you threw something in the show notes about, well, I think the physical market's under threat. I mean, that's not my experience. Books seem to be absolutely booming. I know we had a podcast on this about a year ago where there's a million frontline titles. The bookstores that I go to are absolutely rammed. I saw a presentation at DMXCO in Cologne, a digital marketing conference a couple of weeks ago from TikTok talking about book talk. And that book talk on TikTok had something like 162 billion views. Wow. And they can point very specifically to massive spikes in sales of particular titles. Now, maybe not the most erudite or sophisticated titles, but teens are getting into and digging reading because of book talk. And this feels almost like back something near and dear to your heart, like what we saw in vinyl, mm -hmm. in music. I mean, that people are rediscovering that physical book form. It's portable. You can take it with you wherever you want to go. It's not staring endlessly at your doom scrolling on your smartphone. But this physical market seems to be doing really well. Why do we have to have this incremental innovation of an audiobook to spur what seems to be right now kind of a boom in publishing, even though like many other fields, it has become incredibly concentrated with five players potentially going to four. Well, firstly, I want to draw that 
analogy out between vinyl still i've said on the podcast before the most fascinating stat in the vinyl resurgence is that 60 percent of vinyl buyers don't own a record player so they're spending 20 30 quid to buy 10 tracks whereas 10 pound a month gets you 100 million songs and they don't own a record player to play and that reminds me of the greatest lesson i ever learned about the book industry from a very famous publisher who said that 80 percent of books that he sold are not consumed by the consumer that is they sit on the glass table get dusty on the shelf they're not actually read. And I can testify if I look at my book collection, 80% of the books in that title, David Hume, I haven't tried to read him, Karl Popper, I wish I tried to read him, but there's a lot of books there which haven't been consumed. So we have a very interesting thing here where people are buying a physical product without the intent of actually consuming it. Perhaps they're buying merchandise, perhaps they're buying a badge, perhaps they're buying a sense of identity when they acquire that hardback book. That's a big one. In terms of like, the high street seems to be doing fine. I think there's threats here. One is, is the high street presence. If you look at train stations today, new train stations that are being built, they don't have news agents. They don't have WH Smith. They have space to sell belt and chocolates. They don't have space to sell books, newspapers, and magazines. So I think that could be a potential next moment for the physical book market. And I think the second one, as we've discussed at podcasts, only 24 hours in a day, Songs are asking for three minutes of your time. Podcasts are asking for 45 minutes of your time. Books are asking for 40, 14 hours of your time. There's that constraint of attention. And I think what you're, especially if you look at the very frontline turf war for apps and attention, apps that can squeeze into that finite attention space. Now, a great app that I'm using a lot just now is Duolingo. Why? Because it can squeeze it into those 10 spare minutes, 15 spare minutes of every day. They're working. And I wonder whether those apps that squeeze into the nooks and crannies of your attention span win, meaning those apps which are asking for long-form attention lose. So I think there is some headwinds, but there's also some tailwinds ahead for the audiobooks market. So you just made a really fascinating point, Will, and I want to wrap up this first half with this idea that we're looking for those 10 or 15 minutes to fill mm -hmm. our, our gaps in our day, and that I could see how a chapter of an audiobook might be that solution. At the same time, you suggested that we're losing out with long-form attention because our day gets divided up in those 10 or 15-minute chunks by things like social media, which Absolutely. capture our attention so virulently. Before we go to the break, you mentioned headwinds and tailwinds. What's so fascinating to me is the notion that on the one hand, we'll be trying to squeeze chunks of knowledge or learning or content into these 10 to 15 minute breaks we have in our day, yet you're suggesting that the long form high quality content is losing out to apps like Duolingo or social media that is grabbing our attention. So I want to get back into that as we come back from the break and try to understand also a little bit better the commercial side of this audiobook industry since it's a subsector of an industry that itself you have brilliantly described as being incredibly murky and antiquated. Back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the second part of Bubble Trouble, talking about audiobooks. I want to get into the commercial side of the business with Will. You're an author, you've written your book, you've published it, you've made a pittance, really, and now with audiobooks, you make even less. But tell us a little bit how audiobooks should be sold, how they get paid, what the term credits means for Audible, and why we're not seeing that with Spotify, and how much does an author get paid to write a book and how much do they make from an audiobook if someone else is doing the reading of their work? Well, the Scottish expression is taking cream off your milk. That is, when money comes from the consumer's wallet into the value chain, very little of that actually trickles down to the author. To do some rough math with you, if a credit was £8 or a subscription was £10 and you're consuming an audiobook, of that sum, the author makes wait for this, 6.11%. It ain't a lot. It is a fraction of a fraction. As all the various layers of revenue come off the top, that's what actually is making it down to the author. And that's low in absolute terms. That's also low in comparative terms. If you think about the music industry, I mean, royalties are what, 20, 25, 30% from a record label. Equally, DistroKid, you get 100% of the value the consumer generates on that particular song. So it's interesting to step back and think that the trickle-down effect is not pretty in the audiobooks market. How that will work with Spotify, I don't know. We've seen some concern in the press expressed about how these deals are going to work. If it's, if it's a meter-style pricing model as opposed to a credit-style pricing model, what happens if Richard consumes a couple of minutes of his audiobook package in one month and I consume 15 hours in my month? What happens if I use two months to consume the same book? Does the author just get paid once, but the publisher get paid twice? All these types of issues are going to kick in as well. So they reiterate mm -hmm. this is a hard market to price in that value chain because the nature of audiobooks are so different from the nature of songs. They're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. But I guess a couple of things strike me here. One is I know if I buy a book at my local bookshop for 20 pounds from a, a, a well-known author, Zadie Smith, I just bought her new book, signed copy at Daunt. It was 20 pounds. She gets a pound 20. Great. That's it. Or actually, you're saying the physical book, she gets about 15%. So she would actually do a bit better. She might get three pounds. But if I buy a version of her reading the book, she'll get only a pound 20. Yeah. And she may get nothing if I listen to 15 hours of her reading it as part of my 10 pound a month Spotify subscription. Yeah, that's where it gets a little bit murky in terms of what else are you doing with your hours on the clock as well. So we're allocating hours for a fixed fee as opposed to a credit, which is a unit value. So the credit model Audible has is much closer to you visiting Gaunt Bookshop and buying that signed copy of a book because there's a unit value there. 
pricing by hours is different. Are you going to spend all 15 hours of mm. one, one month listening to just one book, or are you going to spread it across four or five titles? That's where it's going to get a little bit tricky. And it, it does seem to be in the industry a bit of confusion about, okay, product's launched. What about the author? Speaking as one author, whose agent is Curtis Brown, they were not consulted about how this deal was going to work. Forget about huh. Will Page. What about Margaret Atwood, who's also represented Oops. by Curtis Brown? So it gets a little sticky. It sounds to me like someone like Spotify might have wanted to launch this and get it out there to make a big PR splash, but maybe hasn't thought through all the downstream implications or who might get pissed off. Because we know, as you've eloquently discussed in previous Bubble Troubles, how hard it is for most of the artists that are on these streaming music services to get anything, even to cover a cappuccino every month, out of their royalties. And here we're saying the authors won't even get that much. I don't think if there was a blame game, and let's hope this is a storm in a teacup and it all blows over and we have a successful competitor to Audible in the market giving customers great audio experience and they all lived happily ever after. That said, I don't think it sits with Spotify, this issue. It sits with the publishers. The publishers haven't consulted the agents. Therefore, the agents haven't consulted the authors as to how these deals work. And that doesn't just go for Spotify. For just about every audiobooks proposition, there seems to be this big sort of black box in between the publishers and the authors, which lacks explanation. And if I can recall my favorite quote about my book journey experience from Adrian Fernand, very famous organizational psychologist, when I spoke to him, when I learned that my book was in production, I called him up and he was hugely influential in the conclusion of my book. I said, can you believe it, Adrian? You've got 40 books to your name. I'm going to have my first. My mum and dad are going to have an author as a son. This is a huge moment for me. They're producing my book somewhere in Northamptonshire. And he said, sit down, Will, and reflect, because you're about to learn what it means to become a sperm donor, because that's all you are. And it's just a reminder of you put your life and soul into a book, but once you're on that conveyor belt, the publisher's chain, you're one of 80 books that are getting released that quarter, which means this next quarter, you can only be 81st in their attention span. And it's just a reminder of just where the author actually sits in terms of the relevance here. Well, this is back to the uh, massive overproduction of cultural artifacts that we've had since the art of the age of mechanical reproduction. But could this be the case where you have a lot of high profile offers that say, you know what? No, I don't want my work distributed where I'm literally not going to get paid for it. Whereas the music artists simply have to, because the only way for them to get paid, they don't have that record store that's going to sell millions of copies of their album the way they had before. Clearly, the way they get paid today is touring and live music. They can't easily refuse the, the ads that they get for their live tours of playing the music on the streaming services. Whereas the authors could say, you know what? forget it. We want to opt out, especially if they're well-known authors and they've got powerful agents. You've seen some opt-outs in the history of music, Taylor Swift being the famous one, 2014, mm -hmm. December 2014, she withdrew her entire catalogue off the platform, arguing she didn't want to be part of an experiment. Now, could you see Margaret Atwood doing that today? I don't know. I think there's a genuine welcome aspect to having Spotify enter this market. I think there's a realization the market isn't that big and should be bigger. I think where we have the kind of headwinds, tailwinds debate here is, yes, Spotify scale really fast in the UK. If you can get above 2 million people in Spotify using this audiobooks, you'd probably be the market leader. So you can get that side of it. 
So scale will help resolve issues of a Margaret Atwood of this world or a Neil Gaiman withdrawing their product from the service. But equally, is that incremental revenue or are they seeing their hardbacks and paperbacks fall? And that's where you have this constant fear of cannibalization when you're dealing with digital transformation in media. But is it one hand giveth and the other hand taketh away? Or is this revenue that's been found that couldn't have been found elsewhere? So that's fascinating that you're talking about the cannibalization of the physical book sales, especially since you know that, hey, that three pounds I'm getting for a 20 pound hardback or maybe a pound 50 for a 10 pound paperback goes to pennies Mm -hmm. for a few hours of that streamed out of my many hours of listening during the month. That's one level of cannibalization. The other level, which is fascinating to me, is are we going to see people pushed towards listening to audiobooks instead of other forms of audio content, be that music, be that podcasts, be that radio? Are we going to see Spotify or do they have a vested interest to push people towards a product where they don't really have to pay for it in the same way as they have to pay for music? So on the first point, One way of solving the cannibalization concern, and the answer has been written on the wall for years now, and now we have competition, maybe Amazon, Audible, who also big friends of the show, could react to this, is by simply allowing the consumer to buy in one simple click, which is what Amazon does so well, every format that they can see. So instead of book for $14.95, Audible for confusing credit price, Kindle, well, I've got a kind of subscription to Kindle, how about you just say, Luke, give us 40 quid, you got a hardback, you got a Kindle copy, you got an Audible copy, and it's all yours. Take it to the till and check out. And that mm. bundle, that super bundle of literary content would be a really great solution to this. And you might see competition form that, that, that bring that solution to the market. And um, then to the other point, there's only 24 hours a day. If you're consuming 15 hours of audiobooks, what are you not consuming? Who would be the loser? Yes. Is it going to be radio? Is it going to be music? Is it going to be podcasts? Podcasts are in their infancy. There's a big confusion there about, are we actually listening to podcasts? A download does not equate to a listen. Did we actually listen through to the end of a podcast? It'd be interesting to understand what happens when you lift the lid on a transactional business of Richard bought Zadie Smith's book, great, to consumption analytics of, has he actually read Zadie Smith's book? And if so, how much and over what length of time? That's where we open up the hornet's nest here. The, I don't understand why when you buy the book from Amazon, you aren't offered the bundle that I know. provides the audio version of it anyway. But I'll tell you one great example that I saw back earlier in my career. For a long time, and I think still today, the studios made tremendous margins on the director's cut, extended edition versions versions of famous movies, whether it was The Godfather or Star Wars or Blade Runner or whatever it was, they would add all this extra content, bonus features, they would remaster it, and they would sell for the cost of a DVD, which was typically between $1 and $2, including distribution. Mm -hmm. For $30 or $40 or $50, they'd sell a new version of effectively old wine and new bottles. And it was a brilliant business model. And I don't understand why this audiobook market wouldn't be a similar style race to the bottom, whereby everything is available 
in all formats when you purchase the rights to the master in the same way as if you own the, it used to be that we'd own a CD and we'd burn that CD so that we'd have a digital file of a CD and we could load that on a player, but we'd also own the physical CD. Yeah. So why, when is that going to come and, and change the dynamics of this audiobook market and maybe make it something that we shouldn't be paying extra for? Well, just going back to you when you said remasters, I always remember Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page, no relation, unfortunately. That famous remastered version of Led Zeppelin's box set, which came out with huge furor. And the main driver of that wasn't just versions. It's when you remaster content, it stays in copyright. <laughs> so the whole purpose was to forever and a day increase the life of copyright of a piece of intellectual property. So, and then, and then we look at the versions things. Yeah, it, it would be a no-brainer for Amazon to respond to this with that simple frictionless process of it's Will's book, whatever content you want, you can bring a horse to water or you can bring water to the horse. You can find Will's book on all these contents. Just click here, bang, it's yours. It could be out before Christmas. Apple could do this. And you're talking about an antiquated industry of publishing where for reasons I've never been able to understand, it takes a year or a year and a half between penning the final words to getting a book to the market. I don't understand why the supply chain and publishing is so elongated when Taylor Swift could record something, put the recording in the can, and it can be out to the populace in a matter of weeks. I don't understand that. But let's go back to one other issue before I talk to you about getting the smoke signals here, which is the Society for Authors has already popped up and said, hang on a second, we need to understand a bit better how we're going to get paid. What's going on with that? And what are the author's position on this new distribution channel, are they eager or are they fearful? I think they're eager for competition. They're eager for new players in the market. They know that this market is, should be bigger than it actually is. But back to my earlier remark, I just think authors being the last person in the food chain to get consideration in terms of explaining how this deal is going to work. And that's never good for publicity. That's never good for relations in what is a very reciprocal mm. business. Let's get down to brass tacks here and ask you, put you on the spot for the smoke signals. We've got all this hype about audiobooks. And of course, whenever a company launches a product, it's going to be done with great fanfare and, and proclaimed as this phenomenal new innovation and a disruption to the market. But is it really? What are you hearing here that just makes you wince a little bit for all the crazy claims about how big the audiobook market might grow to be. Well, are we in the business of books or are we in the business of breakage? Breakage is a very different business. And if it is true, as that famous publisher said, and I quote him in the book, that 80% of what he sells isn't consumed, and we move from a transactional business to a consumption analytics business, well, you can see right there a big fat smoke signal, which is monetizing consumption might be not worth as much as monetizing the upfront transaction of something that was never consumed. So saying goodbye to breakage would be an interesting business model to kind of work through here. I think that's smoke signal number one. We're going to learn an awful lot about the consumption of books that we haven't learned in the past. How many were started, how many were finished, over what duration of time. We could be waking up to a pretty nasty hangover there in terms of just how good the business of breakage is. But hang on. Just to play devil's advocate here, 
I've never been a fan. I've never used one. But isn't that something that Amazon sees with Kindle? Because they know what page you stopped and started on. They know how much of a book you downloaded and bought onto the Kindle you actually read. Mm -hmm. They get to see the analytics. Now, they don't see the analytics of what's on my shelf and by my bedside table and how quickly I read through that stuff. But they certainly do on the digital version. And is that somehow data that they're making use of to figure out which authors they should pay more or less or how they should price the books? My understanding from people in the book industry is that when you're on Kindle, you do get consumption analytics. And to paraphrase the way it was explained to me, if you get some book which is titled 10 Ways to Change Your Life, most readers consume just two of them. So eight of those ways definitely didn't change your life. I think we all got a little tired of those listicle articles on the 28 <laughs> jaw-dropping things you've got to see on the internet. So give me another smoke signal, something else to be worried about. Are we all going to shift our time and attention from music as we did to podcasts as they popped up during the pandemic and became a thing, a fad and a bubble that blew up based on the shows that got canceled and the money that didn't get uh, realized to return on. And now into the wild world of audiobooks where we're all going to be walking down the street, listening to our favorite authors, uh, maybe even speaking their own words in our ear. Well, the example I have for you, hopefully it's not deemed controversial. It shouldn't be deemed controversial. But it's interesting to see what happens when formats change to how behaviors change. So you mentioned Zadie Smith earlier on. I'm absolutely sure what helped break Zadie Smith's original blockbuster book was the fact that when everyone read it on the underground, you could see that everybody was reading the same book on the underground. And that made everyone else read that same book. Their greatest advertising themselves was the consumer because they held the book on the tube and viral spread of the book led it to be a breakout success. If you then go to the Kindle, the story that I was explained to me with a good deal of authority was Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm sure that's high on your reading agenda, Fifty Shades of Grey, really appealed to women. All 50. I stopped after the first three shades, as you said. <laughs> Shady statement. But it's interesting thing that women loved reading that book on Kindle because they could enjoy what is essentially a form of soft porn, if I can use that expression, without anyone else having to know. So we read right. Zadie Smith because the cover affects our behavior and the cover is doing the marketing for Zadie's publisher. But when we go to Kindle and nobody knows what you're consuming, your behavior changes and Fifty Shades of Grey is a, a breakout success. I think that's just really interesting to think about when the format changes, the behavior might change with it. So you telling me we're not going to see all those airport romance novels, those bodice rippers, that sort of that genre is going to go away and it's going to go digital. <laughs> and if that's the case, why has that not happened in podcasts? Or maybe it has and I'm just not aware of it. Well, I would just be prepared for the books that we've purchased. I mean, you talk about romance novels. I'm thinking of Jilly Cooper and I can see obviously many copies of her books on your shelf behind you there, Richard. Yes, just about the collected works. Um, I think they have their own niche. They'll have an element of inertia. But I do think the idea of business books and self-improvement books means to an end. Do I need to listen to 16 hours to achieve that goal? Or do I need to listen to a 40-minute inspiring podcast to achieve that goal? We're in an attention economy and we're about the productivity of attention. Can I get more out of the same out of less or even better, more out of less? And that's where I wonder whether asking for 15 hours of someone's time in 2023 is asking for perhaps a little bit too much time. Just on that, 
interesting yes. tidbit from the festival season this summer. You know, a lot of rock bands playing at festivals up and down the country this summer got pissed off at their fans because they only knew 34 seconds of their songs. <laughs> Just to close out, I think it's a fascinating question that we need to explore a little bit more about the ways the mediums bleed into one another. And I think what you're saying about business books is so spot on. So many business books, to my mind, I lose interest because they're so badly written. They're repetitive. They're poorly structured. And what you really want is the inspiring 45-minute podcast, the set of 15-minute TED Talks that keep you engaged. And maybe those mediums need to bleed together and somehow learn from one another because so much of the publishing, as you say, ends up being breakage, being wastage. 80% of books that are sold are not consumed by the reader, which is why the publisher said to me, the record collection defines who you are and the book collection defines who you really want to be. And never a truer word was said. I'm going to end this by saying I buy a lot of books and I read them, but I must be very much the outlier. And what we're going to need to do is find someone on our podcast to come on our podcast who listens to a lot of audiobooks and tells us who the best readers are and what's worth listening to, because that's a heck of a lot of hours I'd have to take out of my time to devote to a book that I think it takes a lot longer to listen to than to read. With that, it's been another fascinating topic. We'll be back next week with more on our way to, on our march to 100 episodes. I'm Richard Kramer, and Will Page has explained audiobooks to us. This is Bubble Trouble. Thanks for listening. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nuzum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host, Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.